your identity as a strength and conditioning coach or a sports scientist, whatever it might be, if that is feeling fulfilled in your life and that's a big part of your identity, then there's a fair chance your mental health will be quite intact. Where if it's not going as well, that's when your mental health is probably put under more strain. Welcome to the Find the Gap podcast, where we're going to focus on the health and well-being of the support personnel and practitioners within high-performance sport. This will act as a platform for practitioners to share their own insights and experiences that have helped them progress to where they are today, as well as be a safe environment in which they can touch upon moments of vulnerability and other emotional battles in which I've had to overcome in order to be successful. My name is Sam, and thanks for joining me on the Find the Gap podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Sustainable Sports. Sustainable Sports is an apparel company designed for every athlete. Every piece of apparel is produced and made from recycled plastic bottles, which at the end of the period of use can be returned to be remade into the new model. 80% of discarded textiles can just sit there for more than 200 years, which emits methane, a powerful greenhouse gas that is more potent than carbon. Sustainable Sports looks to be the apparel company that uses 100% recycled polyester fabric to help protect the planet. Their products are designed to look and feel great in order to boost the performance of those wearing them. Sustainable Sports understands the difficulties in community level sports and the struggles that local clubs have to endure throughout the season to get the players on the park. Sustainable Sports is made up of the individuals who are passionate and involved within sports at the grassroots levels. So today I'm going to talk to Michael Inglis and Michael is a sports and performance psychologist who has been working in the mental health field since 1999 but focuses on the sports of performance since he's co-founded The Mind Room in 2012. He believes in a holistic approach to performance and that well-being of athletes off the field is just as important as the performance on it. He works with athletes, coaches, and teams to build high-performance environments and develop key mental skills to enhance performance. Some of the sports Michael has worked with include the three football codes in AFL, rugby union, and football. He also has worked with Olympic-based sports such as cycling, swimming, and track running. He's currently the lead psychologist for the PFA and works with the Tasmanian women's cricket team. So without any further ado, here's the chat with Michael. Um, awesome. Michael, thanks for jumping on, mate. How you doing? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Sam. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you, mate. Good. Um, would you just like to start by just giving you a little bit of a rundown of yourself, maybe some experience in the past, educational background, and just where you are now? Yeah, so I, I don't know how far back we're going to go. It's been it's been a while now, but okay. uh, basically, um, went through school. Uh, I mean, in terms of my interest in sports, you know, kind of athletic background at different levels as I as I grew up, and um, probably like most young boys, wanted to to be something, be some sort of sports star in in any particular sport. Um, and once I started going through my kind of art science degree, I kind of came upon psychology and, and that really sparked my interest. Um, so kind of combining those two together, uh, seems really well united for me. Um, but I was really interested in the human approach first. So it's quite interesting being now as I, it's really sport and performance like is the majority of my work, but beforehand, I really, really got my hands dirty, if you like, in, in general psych. So I was a youth worker dealing with teenage homelessness. Um, worked in drug and alcohol for a while, et cetera, et cetera. And did that back then you could, as you were studying psychology, you could work in those type of jobs. Um, so you could be a, a, a pre-graduate or so um, and still work in those jobs. And then it wasn't for a few years later, I went, right, I'm going to go back and do my master's in sports psych. So to be a sports psychologist now, you need to go back and do your master's and become endorsed by working in it. Um, so I went back that and did that. Um, and that would have been finished... 13 years ago now and then um, started dabbling in a bit of sports psych and then I started the mine room in 2012 so that's a my business and practice between myself and uh, Joe Mitchell who's a clinical psychologist but has worked done a lot of work in sport performance as well and we've kind of built our little baby here um, and then and, but my kind of my side of the business has been um, is very much around that sports performance piece and that's what I've been doing really in the last kind of eight to nine years to different degrees um, and kind of worked with different high levels sports. So involved and engaged in teams, you know, such as AFL, rugby union, soccer and so on. Um, but we also worked for different associations. So, yeah, AFLPA, rugby union, ACA cricket. Um, and now, like in the most kind of current role, working for Cricket Tasmania, 
um, the lead psychologist for PFA, which is a soccer or the football association for the players around the country, around the world. Um, and obviously taking care of all the, all the staff here at the mine room. So we've got staff around about 45, 30 clinicians, um, most of them based in Melbourne, majority of them based in Melbourne. Um, so really look after all of them, but also specifically the sports and performance team. Yeah, perfect, mate. I had a question about if you could balance it out for me, the need for a sports psychologist compared to what you do to seek out, you know, like, hey, you guys need to have a chat about this. How does that compare to, yeah, the need for it? They come to you for it. That's, a, uh, that's an interesting question, Sam. Uh, generally, and this is make me my own reflection of how I go about things, um, it's really them coming to us. I, I can't think, I mean, sometimes there's, there's opportunities on moments where you're talking to people and networking that that conversation does come up and there'll be that discussion around where does that need fit? Um, but quite typically, it's, it's literally people approaching us um, and saying, we, we want this or we need this for our organisation or our team or whatever that might be or our group. Um, how can you help us and what can we go about that? Um, yeah, as opposed to that kind of more proactive approach uh, where we actually kind of, you know, assertively going out there and going, so this is what we can do, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, so not to say you can't, it's just, uh, it's just never ventured that way. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that we have such like this big issue in terms of, well, not just in athletes, but in terms of just general society as well. But, and the first thing I think of is like the male stigma of like, you know, I'll, put up with this whatever it is why do you think even in athletes we have this such large issue of um, talking about mental wellness and mental well-being again like in athletes or society or just coming out and speaking about yeah i mean i think firstly we need to kind of define a bit of a difference here so as a performance psych we're kind of doing a couple of things so you know you talk about mental well-being and mental health there that's very different to the performance elements of psychology. And I think that's, so, you know, without um, mansplaining it too much here, but I think that's where, that's our point of difference. So psychologists, their core, their core study as they kind of go through is around mental health and around the clinical issues that uh, people and humans experience. I think the performance psychologists or sports psychologists are really have the, the performance-based mental skills to assist them with their game. Now, but that doesn't, me to say that those things don't overlap because they absolutely do. And also one can lead to the other um, and either way. So their uh, mental health can lead to their performance or their performance can actually lead to their mental health, both um, in a good way, in a helpful way and an un unhelpful way. And we also have in these very unique components where people's mental health can be poor, but their performance can be very good and vice versa. So it's not, it's not one or the other and it's not at a direct, we're not talking about the same thing all the time. It's probably what I'm trying to highlight here. Yeah. However, the question you're asking about the stigma of psycho psychological assistance uh, still remains. However, I would say the stigma is higher still around mental health than on performance. So for an example, the best engagement, when you talk about you know, how people approach me and our connection that we form, the best engagement I can get from people is going to talk to a group. So it's not one-on-one, -on -one, so it's less invasive. It's a group where I'm like, here's Michael to talk about um, uh, how to be how to better focus in your performance and I'll do a general discussion about a performance-based mental skill such as attentional focus and I will be very performance specific people are then want to engage in that first and then what I'll actually identify in the follow-up to that is then there might be then they might be more comfortable to talk about their mental health mm. so the stigma is still attached so people still go well I don't want to go and seek psychological assistance for my performance but they're more likely to do that more than their mental health. Mm. Okay. Um, why is it present? Um, I think it's present in all of our society, but what I would say is I think we have improved significantly in my professional career so far um, and, and beyond more generations. Um, but that doesn't mean to say there's still a gap and we're still working on that. And I, mean, I think in sport, we are, I think we're improving that area. Um, in men's sport, which I think you're highlighting, um, is it higher again? Yes, but again, I think we're making progress as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think we are too. And that's a common thing that a lot of people are saying that we, we are coming a long way, but there's still a long way to go. 
And the, the people that are coming to you, do you have more so people that are coming to you for, I need him to assist my performance? Or do you have people coming to you saying, I'm really, really down and I'm not performing well? You know, <laughs> performance is second. How do I improve? Well, I'm feeling the way I'm feeling at the moment. Yeah, in my experience, and, and people have, might have different experiences and views on this, but my experience is people are very performance, athletes we're talking about now are very performance focused first. Yeah, okay. So typically, if their performance is going well, their mental health is improved, which kind of makes sense. Yeah. So if you think about yourself or anybody listening to this around your identity, now, if, you, if your identity is a strength and conditioning coach or a sports scientist, whatever that might be, if that is feeling fulfilled in your life and that's a big part of your identity, then there's a fair chance your mental health will be quite intact. Yeah. Where if it's not going as well, that's when your mental health is probably put under more strain. Because it, it's typically what we what we our, our biggest focus point, whether it be our career or our sport, whatever it might be, that is we have a strong alignment to that in terms of our own identity. And therefore, if that's going well, we feel better about ourselves. Mm. Yeah, 100 So athletes are exactly the same. If their performance is going well, generally their mental health is intact, but not always. Mm-hmm. And it's on a continuum. So it's never, it's never in a concrete point, right? <laughs> it, it's fluctuating all the time. So hence the, hence the difficulty of uh, week-to-week competition for athletes because they're one performance away, you know, feeling better or worse or whatever that might be. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Can you share your thoughts on the recent, um, for example, uh, we've got no, Naomi Osaka, we've got uh, Simone Biles who are literally not doing their chosen, uh, if we say identity or their chosen sport mm. because of their own mental well-being. Uh, can you kind of mm. touch on how important it is for you know major top paid elite athletes taking a stance and kind of preaching their own mental health? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think we're, we're slowly gathering over in the last kind of four or five years more athletes taking kind of mental health breaks or mental health leave. Mm. Um, I, I think what we've seen, the two you're mentioning now, are very unique, you know, more to that. So we've, I think in the last few years we've seen people go, I need some space away from the game or whatever that might be to, to look after my mental health. Mm. But I think the, the Osaka one was very, was very groundbreaking because of the interview process. So someone who was kind of putting their hand up saying, I have social anxiety that can, that can sometimes delve into depression elements. Um, and then virtually saying the interview process was something, although she understands is a fulfillment of her as a, a part of her role as the athlete, it's provided an interview. She was making a stand a bit about how those interviews actually function, mm. which can be very provocative at times and very, um, very difficult for many athletes. So her kind of highlighting that with her social anxiety, I think was really significant um, because I think, you know, obviously it's just tennis at this point in time, but I think there's, there's other good examples in other sports is I don't think a lot of the times the journalists or people asking those interviews or the reporters are actually considering the athletes' mental health when they're asking the questions. Mm. In fact, I, almost, I can argue they're almost provoking, <laughs> provoking a, a negative experience or negative response from them a lot of the time. Um, so uh, I haven't, we haven't, I haven't seen the response or heard the response from these reporters, but in tennis, whatever, or there's been a shift or change in the attitude. But um, I think that's interesting that she's doing that. Well, from your opinion, do you think there needs to be a change or do you think that it's almost like that's a part of the role as being an elite athlete? Yeah, that's the tricky one, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I think there is, I mean, I think there's a bit of both, but that doesn't mean the can't be respect to the athletes provided. I think this is, I think this is what I've enjoyed about Naomi and very courageously so, because I think she's received a lot of criticism. Like, well, this is part of your role is why you get paid your money because we're going to ask you all of these questions. But does that mean they can ask you anything? <laughs> like, is anything off the books here? Because it, it, it appears that's been the approach or attitude is, well, you're, you're ours for 30 minutes post-game, so we can ask you whatever we, whatever we like. It seems to be the attitude and, the fact that she's made the stand against that is, I think, is a, I think, terrific for everybody else to think about. Well, maybe we need to be a bit more delicate with the way we conduct these interviews and the questions we ask. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Mm. I agree with that. Now, I read a a blog entry. I think it was a few years ago. You posted it was about 
different the different kinds of performance. Um, I just wanted you to briefly touch on uh, or differentiate between what you label as uh, mindful, resilient, and peak performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so be between those three. Yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean the 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 very basic sort of definition of resilience is how people respond or bounce back to. I think for me is my experience is the way I kind of teach it in terms of particularly my mental conditioning program that I teach, which is, which is in essence a resilient program for performers is how to, how they can respond or how they cope with their internal states when they perform. So what that means is um, our internal states are our thoughts, our emotions and our physical sensations, which is really important to athletes because our body sends messages to the mind. So I, I have this thing where I always teach kind of athletes and teams around, well, your body doesn't do anything that your mind doesn't tell it to. <laughs> so the mind is actually constantly in that conversation with it. Mm. But we have this unique thing as well where the body actually is under fatigue and stress. And so that will send messages back to the mind that then needs to make a choice for what to do with. So anyway, we have these internal states. They're internal because they're happening inside of us. So we can't see them, but they're operating. And they're operating 24-7. And when we perform... So the, the resilience, if you like, of the mental conditioning is actually coping with some of those thoughts, coping with those emotions, coping with those physical sensations um, as we perform. And that's the skill that we know how to deal with them or cope with them whilst we're in action. Mindfulness or the mindful performer piece, that's just a skill applied. So mindfulness is actually the skill that teaches us how to cope as such. Mm. Okay. And then that's the gateway to peak performance because if we can cope with those internal states, we're allowed to be more present-minded, more on task, more action-orientated, and that is most likely leading to a peak performance. Yeah, cool. That for sure. And again, through your experience, through um, people that have come to you, what is your, sorry, what is the most common kind of stressor that athletes are trying to deal with, whether it be, for example, I don't know, there could be things at home, but could it be selection? Could it be making an Olympic squad? Whatever it might be. Like, uh, what is mm. the stressor that you've encountered contact with? Yeah, I, the things that people um, mostly come with are sometimes things that actually have very little control over or that I believe are, um, are not as important as they believe they are. So, for example, confidence is a big one, right? Um, and I've kind of learned this in my own journey. The confidence is a very overrated concept because um, it's like, as in, not to suggest it's not a good thing to have it because it is, and it's really, it's really great when you do have it. However, trying to find tools or mental skills for it, um, I actually think is quite redundant mm. um, because, by definition, confidence is about knowing how to do something. Mm. So, if I asked you to climb Everest today, Sam, you probably, you probably be a very low confidence to it unless you've done a lot of mountain climbing and um, or climb something of that kind of nature. So me trying to give you confidence of that was kind of a bit useless. I go, well, what are, what are the, what, where, do, where do you need to channel your efforts? So you go, well, I go and train, I go to altitude, I do a smaller mountain first and blah, blah. And three months later, you've done all that. And you go, I say, how confident do you feel now? Well, more confident because I've I put my efforts into the training. <laughs> um, uh, so now I'm, anyway, okay, so what do we need to do next? So I put more of a focus on effort than confidence, but confidence is a high presentation um, to us. Mm. And probably the other one is, you know, performance anxiety, which is a very common one, tolerating that. But I find the micro elements of the performance anxiety quite interesting, you know, pressure from coaches, pressure from teammates, interpretation of expectations, um, what they read in the media, you know, um, as opposed to the micro skills, such as the, you know, the visualization, the breathing, the mindfulness activity, you know, arousal control, stuff like that. Yeah. When moving on to that in interpretation of expectations um, hmm. and your own kind of confidence, I'm assuming I can answer this question for you because uh, I want to jump to the next one, but you take your confidence from, like you said, your practice and your training through years of study and, and, and applied, um, uh, applied work a client comes to you or an athlete comes to you, how do you deal with that expectation of like, what happens if they leave my practice and they haven't got anything out of it? 
have you got these kind of like in expectations in your head? Like, what if they don't do this? What if they think of this? Did any of those kind of words or, or uh, thoughts pop into your head? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think it's really the important piece of what we do. So is trying to actually understand what their needs are. And that's, it sounds like that's a very, very straightforward, but it's actually kind of not. So, because human psychology is complicated, right? So people can come in believing that they're coming in for this particular reason, but that's not what they're really coming for. So how they understood themselves coming in versus how they understand themselves two sessions in spending some time with me might've changed. Mm. Or they go, or they might want to ignore, like you might go, you might reflect back to them, this is, this is the formulation in front of me that I see. This is what I think is best. And they go, no, no, I just want to get, I just wanted you to teach me how to get better at this. Mm. So they're even most opposed to it. Not mm. opposed, but they have a different view of what they think is most important to work on, okay. even though you'd be suggesting something else and then you're just kind of going to work with that. Um, but I think it's a really important piece of what we do. Yeah. Okay. And, um, how- and we're okay. scientists, right? So there's times we go, we think we've got to write together, but maybe then we've, we've uncovered something else in the process, right? Well, we need to go and... We need to go and really focus on that at this point in time before we come back to this. How, how would you kind of address a case where someone thinks that they, they know what they need or they, they think they know what they need and they're not going down your route of um, uh, recommendations? Well, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's my role is to be as responsive as I can to them. So if they're clear about what they want, want me and my role to do, then that's kind of an easier one. I think when they are not clear or they go and trial something and, and so on. So, I'm just thinking of an example. Now, quite recently, I had, a, I had a young footballer kind of come in and basically had issues with a lot of what I saw as um, the staff around him, like coaches and so on and so forth. But then when I actually kind of kept on presenting back to him and reflecting back to him, and this is where it's delicate, he actually, I said, I'm like, but how is this helpful? So not suggesting that he didn't have some relevant points here, but how helpful was it to stay focused on this versus what he needed to do to get better? Mm. And so what, we're, what he ended up taking away is actually I need to work on some things with myself. Even though he came in thinking, well, it's all the coaches' fault. Help me how to handle the coaches. <laughs> so, you know, and that's delicate because I've got to build that rapport with him mm. before giving him the difficult news. Is, yeah, maybe, but what can you do here as well? And what are the things that you can work on for yourself? Because yeah. it can't be always the coach's fault. Yeah, I get you. I get you. Mm. As, a, as a trainer, as a strength coach, you, you have these kind of like, you know, people say you wear multiple hats kind of thing, like you're a, you're a therapist, you're a nutritionist, like you're supposed to know all this amazing stuff that uh, you haven't gone and studied for. Um, but uh, when you're training people, a lot of people just open up to you and they, they bring out your, your life story or they, they, all these troubles and issues that they got to deal with. And how do, I, how do I fix this? How do I fix this when I'm trying to teach you how to do a deadlift or a squat? Um, <laughs> when you are, your job is actually to, you know, to, to listen to those people and to try and help their performance. When you're having a bad day and you had a shit day at home, you know, everything's just gone wrong, whatever's happening. How do you, I don't want to call it a mask, but how do you kind of like, you know, put that behind you and then deal with what's in front of you. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, firstly, I just want to acknowledge your intro to that, which I think is really interesting because you're right. All the, I've always kind of admired the physical therapist in in many ways. Like, and I don't want to create a dichotomy here, but in my experiences, it's amazing how the masseurs, the physios, the strength and conditioning, or they get, they get completely open athletes to them all the time. You know, talking about reducing the stigma. They were easily opened up to you by the nature of, who you are and, and so on. Mm. But then they go, well, go and speak to the psychologist and be the same or just be around them. Mm. And then it's like, oh my God, now they, how do I contain this conversation? Yeah, true. <laughs> Which is so, I've always wondered about how do I, I need to go and do some physical therapist training of some sort. So, um, <laughs> so I could do both at the same time is, would be the sweet spot, which is quite, and just, you know, I didn't talk about it as my background, but I was actually a personal trainer in my studies for about three years. Oh really? And of course, oh yeah, and I, which is great. It was because you get a good, you know, baseline psych exposure, don't you? Even when you're in that kind of situation about people's motivations and barriers and all that kind of stuff. So, um, which was, uh, was, was, I think, it was really helpful for me overall. But um, anyway, but um, it's it is interesting how the and this is why. Sorry, and to, sorry to divert, but 
Um, this is why it's really important in terms of my role, I believe, is yes, we're working with the players and the athletes and so on and so forth. That makes sense. But this is why I also need to work with the coaches and support staff as well because they, they create the environment. They're listening to this all the time. So how you respond to these conversations is really important too. Okay. So I would say a, a large part of our work now is with people like yourself in those positions. Mm. Some of them are tricky, right? Yeah, sometimes when you're listening to things, you're like, ah, well, I can help you do a push-up. Can't help you solve resolve your uh, your 30 year marriage going to going to shit. Um, but yeah, do you want to touch on mask? Yeah, yeah. I look at. I think that comes with experience. Like uh, you know, I think some of the days way back when I I remember doing um, a placement at Lifeline. So. We're on the phone dealing with people, obviously, who are suicidal or considering that option in their life, and being a young man and completely being that would that those type of conversations would affect me for for days, or I couldn't sleep that night, or whatever it might be. They'd really haunt and stay with me. And I think of that to where I am now, where I can I can seem to be able to compartmentalize very well. Um, I think you develop your own resilience. I think in time with this, so. But yeah, there are, there are there are days when you're you're having a bad you know you haven't had a, you haven't had a good sleep or you know um, you got your own personal issues and you still show up to work. But for me, I feel like I guess one of I feel like one of the skills I've developed over time is you know when I'm at work, I'm I'm here for these people. You know, I'm present as, as I'm present for them here. And in a sense, that's kind of I find that sometimes that's helpful because actually removes me out of my own stuff for a little while and gives me a space, a bit of, a bit of a break from it for the day mm. and I can return to it later. Um, but no doubt it exists and, and there's a skill involved in, in knowing how to work with that. Mm. Mm, okay. Uh, and you said that you compartmentalize a lot of stuff as much as you can. Um, I feel like I compartmentalize a lot of stuff, but I wouldn't be dealing with um, as much load as a person like yourself. Do you need... Mm techniques to try and release that in a way like do you have ways do you like meditation whatever it might be swing in the in the bay do you have tools to try and let yourself just go yep i think there's i mean i think i've got my own kind of well-being plan and i think that's important i think i know what works for me in terms of looking after myself um which ironically includes physical activity and exercise and it includes psychological techniques such as mindfulness and so on and so forth but I think it's also the supports around you. Um, I'm really lucky in the team that the mind room I've built here, like we've got a really supportive group and there's, we've got a community here of people to talk to, the bounce off, and that's really helpful. Um, but I also know working in sporting teams or organisations, sometimes, most of the time, you're the sole psychologist. So I can feel quite lonely in there at times as well. Um, and because you're there to kind of hold everyone else up, it feels really hard to go and ask to talk to somebody. I found that tricky um, over time. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing I would highlight there is, yeah, always have your well-being plan, your own well-being plan and your own support structure around you. I think they're the two most important things. Okay, for sure. Um, what would you say that you're struggling with at the moment then? I'm struggling like personally or professionally? Personally. Personally? Um, well, we're all experiencing the COVID overlay, if you're living in Melbourne at this point in time. Although I feel like, you know, we're all affected by it in different forms and different ways, right? Um, I feel like personally, my, individually, um, mine's okay because I'm, I'm still able to work. I'm still able to, you know, do the things I want to do. Um, you know, I'm in touch with my family and household and that feels kind of supportive and, and strong and so on. Um, I've been really fortunate in the time that um, got a house in the country, so like regional areas that are, are out of lockdown right now, going to spend some time there. So that's been a really a real asset as well. So personally, I think there's a struggle around the team, like people are the other, all the other people around me. So people that are important, whether they're my personal friends, my family, um, my my community here at the mine room, and looking after them, my clients, and hearing what they're going through. You know, it's hard not to get. It's hard not to, uh, to feel for that or respond to that or some of the unfairness in it all, you know, um, and what they're going through. That's what I found more difficult personally than my actual personal place in it, if that makes sense. Um, and just that constant management of the, the really important people around me. 
And is that, especially like for the, the mine room and you got your, your team and your employees around you, is that because you are, you know, you're the founder or the co-founder and you, you started that and you kind of feel like you're not responsible for these guys, but you're part of looking up, like helping them who are below you. Is that kind of along the line? Yeah. Feel? 100% I do I mean I, responsible is good I do feel responsible because I like if I'm the in terms of sporting organization or if I'm the coach or the football director or whatever you know I am I am setting the environment here for support and how we look after each other so I feel like I need to create the support mechanisms here for them to feel the freedom of working from home coming into work so they need some time off you know, what do they need and trying to meet their needs? And it's such a changing landscape for in that our environment, like the, the, our, that the state and the, the nation sets for us, um, I'm constantly responding to them to then look after them. So I'm constantly feeling in the middle and having to navigate that change for them. Um, so, yeah, that is, that's really important to me that, I, that it, I am responsive and create that environment that is best for them in these times. Yeah, for sure. Mm. When have you felt the most vulnerable in your, uh, your journey, in your career? Oh, I think, yeah, when I, when I hear that, I feel like sports psychology is vulnerable. Like, I felt vulnerable in it all the time <laughs> in many ways. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very odd profession in many ways. Like, uh, and I'll kind of describe it the best I can. So in, in the in psychology world and in the psychologist sphere, we're probably seen as the, the least, we're seen as the least, um, what's the word, uh, known or qualified of the profession. So, you know, there's clinical psychologists, health psychologists, forensic psychologists, child psychologists. We are the smallest group um, in sports psychologists. Um, so in psychology world, we're not, we're not <laughs> probably seen as the highest regarded group, you know, in terms of the hierarchy or the prestigious of that. Um, we go to sporting clubs and we're sometimes very much the last employed or the ones that are employed when only there's a problem <laughs> um, as opposed to a proactive sports scientist. We need to get fit for the season, right? In your world, we need to get you fit and strong for the season. But we're not doing that mentally. Mind you, I think that's changing and we're doing better with that now. But history has said, oh, I better get the sports like in because we're not doing very, <laughs> we're not doing very well is how it has been. Yeah. So in sports science land, you know, we're not so sure where we fit as well. Um, so, and even with like coaches and players, it's, it's, it's the, the attitude or the stigma has been, will you go and see that person when there's a problem, you're out of form, you've been dropped, blah, 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 blah. Mm. So, and generally we work in isolation, you know? So, um, in recent times and in kind of sporting budgets, uh, sometimes, a lot of the time, we've been one of the last kind of added on, which makes us feel more vulnerable in those positions. Uh, as such hence why i really enjoy the mine room um, and what i built here because it's nice and strong there's a community of us there's no it's probably the least vulnerable place in my career um because we're all kind of connected and we all respect what each other does different all the different types of psychologists we have here and we see an importance and a place for it and we share information and we look after each other so that feels actually really nice and safe mm. um where in the sporting world of times it, it feels less so sure okay yeah awesome well do you feel that you've got you've obviously got all these guys under you um and you started the the mine room um do you ever feel that you put your employees as well as your clients and the athletes that come to you do you put them before your own health and well-being so you know yes i'll have that extra client or um i'll help my employee who's struggling a little bit uh, at the moment, because I've been working however long days, but I'll work a little bit extra to help them out. Like, do you ever do you ever feel yourself falling that kind of like uh, that gap of hurting your own well being when you're trying to assist other people? Yeah, uh, no, for sure. Like in terms of, do I make like kind of personal sacrifices? Absolutely, absolutely, I do. For me, when I'm in my professional mode, so as soon as I walk in the door, it, my role is to to support and look after my players, clients, whatever they might be, teams. So that's my role, and I really, I really put all my I guess, energy into that when I'm in that mode. Um, now there are times where I might um, overcompensate in that and and not look after myself as well, and I've made those mistakes before for sure. So there's a constant learning in that. Mm. Um, however, what I would say in my kind of team at the mine room, what I would say is obviously being the the founder and 
and kind of running it early. There was only a couple of us. Mm. So you took on everything when you get to a size of you know, 45 as we are now. And now I've got a, I've got management structure in place. I actually got an org structure. It's unbelievable. Um, and, uh, you know, I've got other people taking on those responsibilities. I, you know, I feel, I feel less to do so. But of course, if there's ever a gap that needs to be filled, I'd always jump in and do it for the, for the benefit of the team and the group and so on and so forth. Even if my energy levels are low, I didn't feel like it, I'd already had a full book or whatever that might be. I'd always jump in for the benefit of the greater good, you know. Yeah, I get you, for sure. When, when have you felt the most anxious? Most anxious? Yeah. Well, like I say, you know, anxiety is something we all deal with from a day-to-day basis. Mm. And I think to myself, you know, last week, like, like in a sense, I see myself as a performer too um, in many ways. So, like, I feel like, when I'm particularly not in high-performance sport, what I do counts or matters or has been watched or monitored or tested or rated in some particular form. Mm. So that in its very nature uh, produces anxiety. Yeah, okay. So just last week, as I said, I was, I was, down, at, I was down at Tassie um, working the cricket team down there and um, having to present to them, like I'm trying to like do my mental conditioning program with them. And yeah, I, I'm... I'm anxious that it's going to hit the mark and that they're going to respond to it and understand it and connect with it and so on and so forth. Um, like, I think that's an ongoing, that's an ongoing equation or, and working with, uh, also working with the coaches and staff down there, um, meeting with high performance managers and so on and so forth. It's very, because we're checking in, is this working and how's it working? How are we measuring this? And, and, and we're having some, sometimes you're having challenging, difficult, robust conversations. You know, and a lot of the time that comes from me. I'm like, I'm being, not intentionally, but I'm being provocative with the questions I'm asking of them. Like, for example, um, why, what, is, what is the value of weighing? This didn't happen last week, so I don't want to associate with Tassie Cricket with this because it's not them. But this, another sport I've done before is what is the value of weighing them and doing skin, fold, skin folds every week? Hmm. And then going... What do you think of the psychological factors that we need to involve or include by doing so? Now, for a lot of, for, depending on who that is, they, that, that can be a very difficult question for them to consider our answer because they strongly believe that they're good measurements to have on base of fitness and work ethic and so on and so forth. But they haven't for a moment thought about the psychological um, factors in that or how, what it might be the unhealthy components of doing that for the athletes. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting because, um, well, from my own experience, I feel like when we when we're adding on question after question after questionnaire, the first thing as an as a new like a very very fresh intern in the system, I thought that I almost get sick of all those questionnaires, and they almost get like you know how does that affect them mentally? But do you do you ever feel that it's like a like a challenge to, you know, not on the the PT or the strength coach or the the head coach or the managers? authority if you question their kind of techniques they've used for ages if you question the worth of it well obviously it just depends on the personality of the whoever you're talking to but are you mm. are you anxious in addressing those kind of questions because like okay they've done this for six years i'm coming in now mm. thinking what's the use of it mm. yeah absolutely so and that's where uh, your, the relationships that you have are really, really important because if you have good relationships that able is able you to ask those questions of it um, and you've got to also respect what's been done before you. So you've got to understand how do we get to this. So it's been there for six years. It was done for a reason. Mm. So I think before suggesting you've got to understand what was the purpose in all that time, um, you can't just assume coming in that, oh, well, this, isn't, this, this is the wrong way to do it. I know better because that doesn't, that doesn't help either. Mm. Um, but yeah, it pretty provides sometimes when I, I kind of obviously it depends on the personality of the other person and so on, and you kind of understand the way they want to work. Um, of course, that kind of provides anxiety because you're you're challenging regular protocols. So, I mean, I think in my opinion, I think we all could do that. And this is the idea of this is what's so beneficial of coming together. You know, why are we doing the things we do? Why are we asking that? Because from my point of view, in all our different professions, if we all ideally did everything we wanted to do, the players would be there 140 hours a week. So we've, we've got to slice a lot off to make that around 40. 
to go, these are 40 most relevant, or the 40 hours are the most relevant things we do for to get the best out of ourselves and look after you. So we've got to choose really wisely, right? So then isn't it incumbent on all of us to ask good questions about why are we doing these particular things? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Uh, And like you said as well in in the previous discussion about how you're working with the athletes as well, you have to work with the coaches and the the staff. You're not just there for the athlete's benefit. You've really got to kind of work with the the support staff as well. Um, Mm. But but I want you to give me a skill or like an ability that you believe that you've overstated or purposely oversold to people in the past. Yeah. Well, I think I, I think I touched on confidence uh, before um, or, you know, I think that was one of the beginning. I thought that was important in my career where now I, yeah, I don't even almost kind of almost move away from it as a, even a relevant topic to talk about. I just, that's a nice end result when you get there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been particularly one that I reckon I could, I could have left out a little bit earlier. And I think, you know, I've had this kind of, I've gone through my own kind of journey with it as all, but goals versus values. So goals being the kind of the destination we want to get to values, the journey on, on getting there. I think that and combining those two things together has been a real journey for me in its own self. So before I was very goal orientated, I think that's the way, we were taught in sports psychology, but as I've gone on, gone further in, I've seen more and more and more importance on the journey um, and the elements of how we go about getting there, not just getting there um, in terms of fulfillment. Um, and if you want some kind of reinforcement around that, you know, listen to anyone talking about the boomers like Brian Gorge and the coach, Andrew Gaze, who's been part of that culture. You now listen to do any of those interviews about, the 50 something years it's taken to get to that, that medal and how the pride and how they were, the fulfillment they felt that mm. they came forth many years and so on and so forth. But the journey and the experience they got into being part of this is, is a really nice way of understanding the importance of that journey. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, for sure. You see like Gaze when he was interviewing, um, just got, came to tears, didn't he? When he won that, when they won the bronze. It was just, it was just magical. Like I've, I've got to get that cut and use that because I think that's sometimes players don't understand. They go, they're so orientated about getting to a particular point, um, and it's like, no, no, but there's, it's not always about just getting to that point. It's not always about winning the medal. It's about your contribution and the fulfillment of giving everything you wanted to on on the way of getting there. Mm. Um, and I think that's the thing we overlook the most, which is kind of ironic because it's the end result actually provides the most anxiety for us anyway. And most of us are also then at the same time going, well, can you help me with my performance anxiety? <laughs> hmm. That's a good point. Um, next, next question I want to ask you is uh, about an embarrassing event that's happened to you in the past. So if you can, can you think of an embarrassing event? Um, can it be a good or a bad event? Um, I don't really know if it's a good embarrassing event, but anyway, uh, just an embarrassing <laughs> event that's happened in the past that's had a, either a good or a bad effect on you as well for the future. Yeah, no, I saw, and I think your question has you like permanent effect. And I was like, ooh. Permanent effect, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's tender. And it's actually not, eventually, but I was like, I actually feel good about that. There's, there was like, there's plenty of, I can give you plenty of embarrassing moments, but none's a permanent effect. So I'm not sure if that's because I haven't done anything embarrassing enough or I've just built a very good coping mechanism of dealing with it. <laughs> um, <are you> talking- <laughs> it was funny. Um, it was funny. Well, I'm just I can think of those recent ones. There's a big mixture of things. And I've actually, part of my journey is because I've got kids and so on. I've been coached their teams as well. Mm-hmm. And I always like, yeah, walk away going, you know, <laughs> always like, I'm always going to go, do I, do I really need to say that? or really highlight that point or whatever they might be. I'm not sure they're embarrassing as such. Hmm. But there's time you want to take take back again. Um, but no, no. Last well, the one I'm thinking of the most relevant is last week. I was doing my I was doing the session down down with the girls, a group of girls, and um, I've been teaching the skill of mindfulness. So I'll do something introductory, not just change it up, just to kind of get them into the mode and kind of help them center on what we're about to talk about that day. Hmm. And they'd already come back from another meeting, so I said, go and take a 15 minute break, come back, so you get a refresh, so you you know you're ready to go when you come back because it's been sitting down for a while. And they all came back with cups of coffee. So, um, 
So I thought, all right, I want to do something sensory with them. So this thing called the, the, the notice five things. It's really sensory. So part of sensory mindfulness, it, it actually um, assists with the, it's, the demonstration is when you're sensory, you become very present. Mm-hmm. And then the, the flow onto that is that gives you more present mind and it can be really, really helpful when you perform. Because a lot of time they're really cognitive. So I thought, well, I'm going to do sensory. They've all got cups of coffee. Let me use that. So I started like, but I never, I hadn't, I didn't have a script. I wasn't planned for this. I just did it off the cuff. And so I just started saying things about, you know, you know, put your fingers around the cup and, you know, just feel the warmth of it as you hold it and all this kind of stuff. And it just like, it was, it was easily interpreted to sexualization, of course. <laughs> and they all just start pissing themselves, laughing. I'm embarrassed. I'm like, how do I get out of this hole? I've just dug for myself. <laughs> And then, then try to use that. Okay, I know you want to laugh and you think this is really funny, but you have to stay focused on what I'm on my cues right now. And this is really good training for you. So I actually try to use it as a this is actually yeah. more deliberate practice. There you <laughs> go. It was actually it was very embarrassing. Nice flip. I like that. <laughs> um, the last thing I want to ask you, mate, is probably the most important question of them all. Um, what is your best dad joke? <laughs> Uh, well, I've got, I've got an eight-year-old who loves this kind of stuff. So I just, it, they're really basic and simple, but okay. So what's brown and sticky? What's brown and sticky? I don't know. What is brown and sticky? A stick. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought if it's a dad joke, it's bad as it can be, right? So that's as bad as it can be. That's it. That's exactly right. <laughs> so I've got, this, um, I've got this rating system. Um, so it's out of five stars. And um, so far, I'm still actually trying to make up what that criteria is actually going to make up a five out of five stars. But um, getting me involved has been one. Um, And also one of the part of the criteria is how how it makes you react. But also also, uh, how simple it is and how bad it really is, is a necessary part of the criteria. So that's actually up there. Well, I think this is a nice flow into my most embarrassing moments. I'm going to get a five out of five for both just now. <laughs> oh, 100%. You're going, to, you're going to close to a four, a four out of five for that one. <laughs> no, that, was that was good, mate. Um, but finishing off, mate, have you got any kind of advice that you want to give off the top of your head to maybe someone who wants to go and, and be a sports psychologist um, who's just coming through out of uni or still training? Hmm. Actually, well, I actually do have many people approach me so I think like sports psychology has become, I think rise in awareness in now. So people are really engaged, interested in it. I think A is a career, but B, for people who are doing psychology going, oh, sports are a real legitimate option for them. I think before it was so niche and so small and so hard to get to, I think people kind of didn't want to. So I actually do have quite a few kind of people that are kind of mentor, if you like, who are going through. Um, look, my, my first bit of advice is, and this is, this is almost the hardest piece, is really committing to the cause. So what that means is there's actually only one sports-like course left in Australia, unfortunately. Um, that's the sad part. Um, so it's become a little bit homogenous and, and there's lots of advantages of being a clean cycle at the moment. So a lot of people are driving toward that and I can understand why. Um, but my sense is if sports psychology is your thing, that's something you really want to be good at and you really want to be intentional at, um, then go up to UQ and do the course. Do your two years up there. It's a really great experience. You get a lot of good knowledge um, and you can then after that, you, are, you can use that title, which I think is really important. So if you want the, the top end jobs, whether it be working in Olympic teams or working in high performance sports or professional teams, um, going to get that training is really, really important. Sure. And get good supervision is the other one. Go and get good supervision because I think that's really that's crucial too. And that's for all of us, that's including me and, and so on. Yeah. Oh, sweet. And did you want to just give something um, to the listeners about what, what's next for the, the mind room or what, what next that you guys are doing uh, or best way to reach you? Yeah. Okay. So thank you. Yeah. A uh, bit of a plug. So we're based in Collingwood in Melbourne. Um, uh, we've, got, we've got a space here for one-on-one, but also got a group and teamwork as well. Um, I think what we pride ourselves on is, yes, we deal with the, the clinical and mental health side of things. Um, but we do all the well-being and performance-based stuff as well. If you're an athlete or team or coach out there, um, the mental part, we all know, we all talk about it, has been a main pillar of what's really important in terms of our performance. Um, so let's give it the attention it needs. You know, we do the technical, physical, tactical. Um, let's do it with the mental as well. 
we do we do workshops and programs. So that's a nice entry point. So if you're unsure, but you just want to be exposed to some material, um, we do do workshops here that are skill-based. So they're not therapy, they're skill-based. So you're learning something. Uh, myself and my, my co-founder, Joe Mitchell, we, we're providing all the content um, and we've got the kind of modular content on the different things you can learn. How to cope with emotions, different mindsets to carry to your performance. Um, how to do those internal states. I talked about the, the mental conditioning program as well. It's a more thorough six-week program. Uh, they're all available to it for the public or, you know, I can come out to your team or group to do them. Perfect. Mate, good advice um, before what you mentioned, but really, really good stuff you touched on throughout the whole podcast. So I really appreciate your time, mate, coming on and having a chat with me. It was really good. No worries. Thank you, Tim. No worries, mate. Yeah, that's all we've got time for, but um, I'll hopefully speak to you soon. Hang on for a bit and I'll have another chat for you, but apart from that, that's all we have time for. So, mate, appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Sam. So thanks to Michael for having a chat on the podcast. Really enjoyed his time on as a guest. Uh, enjoyed hearing about how he relates the mental health and mental well-being to performance. Well, we talked about the how to combat the issue of just opening up and speaking about mental health and how we link that to how professional athletes are doing that and the importance of that for the rest of society. He linked the identity, how that drives performance, not only with athletes, but with think people and practitioners within high-performance sport as well. Defining and differentiating mental, resilient, and peak performance. I thought that was a really interesting point. How his confidence is derived from effort and practice and how that is linked to his service he gives to his athletes and clients. I also respect what he mentioned about uh, being present in his workplace and how he focuses on what he's doing at work and put other things behind him as he focuses on his clients and his employees. And also how he feels responsible for his employees' wellness, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic and these lockdowns and how he deals with that. So all the best for what Michael and his crew are doing down in the mine room. So give him a message if you're wanting to reach out for some um, some help in the sports psychology field or you're looking for some mentoring. Um, and again, if anything today has triggered you with your own mental health and well-being throughout your own practice, uh, don't hesitate to reach out and have a chat with us. I'm sure Michael will be the same as me and always down for a chat. But for now, that's all we have time for. So I'll speak to you guys next time.